0: Hello and welcome to Monocle on Culture. I'm Robert Bounds. On today's show, we're taking you around the world with all manner of cultural treats in store. We'll hear from an up-and-coming musician in Bangladesh whose dreamy pop ballads have made him a hit at home and further afield. Then I catch up with the director of a new film, Cairo Conspiracy, a tense tale of political intrigue and religious extremism set in Egypt Al-Azhar University. And finally, we head to San Francisco to find out how one bold group of artists is creating a new story for one of the city's neighborhoods. First, Demir Khan grew up in Dhaka, Bangladesh, writing songs and teaching himself to play instruments and produce music through YouTube videos. He released his debut EP in 2021 and he's gained a loyal following in his home country with recent sold-out shows. Demir now lives in Canada, where he's in his last year of university, juggling economics classes with songwriting and playing with his new band and preparing a full-length album. Monocle's Naomi Shoe Elegant caught up with him to find out more.
1: I remember one time in my high school in Bangladesh, like really, really early, I made this one song and they played it during our sports day when everyone was like on the field for sports day. And it was crazy. I saw a bunch of my friends and like people from other grades like dance to the song. And most of them didn't even know that I made that song. But, you know, seeing them dance to it was crazy. Like, you know, I realized that I have the power to make people dance and to make people feel something. And that was really cool. And that was when I was really young and yeah i got into it i started uploading stuff i started sending it to people and eventually you know i got some leads and i started doing it professionally and uh here i am now and i just came back from like a little tour we did in dhaka in my hometown
2: How would you describe your musical style? Because I know that, you know, with songs like Bashpo Balo or Amarjan, there's this really fusion that I at least have never heard before in music. Can you talk a bit about that?
1: I'm so glad to hear you say that, because that's exactly what I'm going for. Like, I started with some, like, indie, indie pop, indie rock stuff. But I feel like my heart definitely lies in advancing the Bangladeshi sound and finding a really distinct Bangladeshi sound and the, you know... Wonderful thing about the situation I'm in is that Bangladesh is such a young country that, you know, we haven't had that much time to develop our distinct sound. Things are still so underdeveloped that, like, I can try things that have never been done before. And so songs like Bashu like Amarjan, and I'm working on some new stuff that's, like, you know, Bangladeshi, and, like, I hope, like, for now it's fusion, but I'm trying to write stuff that's distinct, unique, and, you know, collected and salient and, you know like, direct enough that it becomes its own genre. You know, I really want to modernize the Bangladeshi sound because there's so much wonderful stuff in our musical culture that has yet to be, I guess, like, transformed into a modern sound. So that's really what I have my heart set for, you know? So, like, some of my stuff is indie rock, but I really want it to sound like this is, like, the newest sound from Bangladesh, you know? And I really want to wear that proudly, that, like, this is a Bangladeshi sound.
2: What are some ways that you want to do that? Is that with traditional instruments or particular styles of music?
1: There are various Bangladeshi rhythms that are, you know, like quite similar to Indian rhythms, but like we have our own stuff. And, you know, my father is a drummer and um, they have some songs in my dad's band. They have some songs that are like very Bangladeshi songs, but my dad is playing it on a drum kit. Um, And, you know, I'm finding such like marvelous things about it because... um, it's a really exciting thing once you, like, convert, like, an Indian subcontinental sound or South Asian sound that's usually done with percussions like tablas or dholes and stuff like that. And when you transform it into a drum kit, you get some really, really interesting results. And, you know, of course, the thing with the drum kit is that, you know, it's more transferable. I can go on tour with the drum kit. It's easier to find a drummer and stuff like that. So, you know, like, You know, I'm also finding things where it's, like, you know, it's logistical concerns and stuff like that that informs the way I can make my music. Because, again, like, now that I've done these string of live shows, I'm really, really, really fascinated by the live setting and putting on a really good live set. So, like, transferring some of these rhythms to, like, a drum set, various melodic influences, uh, obviously, like, singing in Bangla. And, you know, Amarjan is a great, was a great teacher for me because Amarjan is is, you know, one of my most successful songs in Bangladesh. And people really like the fusion of it, you know, where it's like the verses are in English and the chorus is in Bangla. And I've been writing more songs like that, you know, and, uh, you know, I'm taking a page out of like the South Korean book. um, Where like a lot of K-pop artists are like mixing, um, you know, their their language with uh, English. Uh, A lot of other artists, you know, in Latin American music, they do that a lot, you know, and all sorts of stuff like that. So um, it's been done before and I know it can work if you do it right. So I've been also working on that. But there's various things. And, you know, just by sh- the sheer coincidence of the fact that, you know, like, again, we're a really young country and, like, we're still figuring what, figuring out what makes us Bangladeshi. We're still kind of confused about what makes us Bangladeshi. It's a really exciting and, like, novel experience to, like, you know, yeah, try to, like, put a Bangladeshi melody or a rhythm or some prose or something like that in a more modern setting. That's sort of how I've been going at it. Sense in this world,
2: and, and when it comes to songwriting, do you find it easier to write in one language than another? Because I know your earlier songs were all in English.
1: I'm more comfortable writing in English, almost mainly because like I consume so much English music that that's been internalized in me, that like I know all of the structures of English music, of Western music and stuff like that. But I find it very, very exciting and very engaging and very meaningful to write in Bangla. And Bangla is a very, you know, like our language is very sacred to us as Bangladeshis, you know. We're like one of the, I think we're the only country in the history of the world to like fight for our independence primarily just for like to speak our native language. I find it technically easier to write in English because I have so many references, but I want to keep exploring both, you know. What do you have planned for the year
2: ahead?
1: for the next time I'm going to be in Bangladesh we're going to have way bigger shows we want to bring artists from all over the place particularly when it comes to bringing Bangladeshi diaspora artists from all over the world there are some brilliant Bengali artists from the UK from the US from all sorts of places so doing that but really like I'm working on a lot of new, new music I have sort of a distant intention that by the next time I'm in Bangladesh I'll have an album ready and have a very clear distinct idea of what I want this album to sound like and I have connections with all sorts of new musicians that can help me create this album Uh, so hopefully by the next time in Bangladesh we're putting together massive shows and I have an album to put together but right now I've been writing like a new song every week I'm a far better producer so they're even sounding better within a few months I hope to have a substantial body of work ready a new body of work but, yeah, I mean, like, just life is, like, coming at me quick. I'm, a, I'm, like, I'm about to graduate, but I'm, you know, I have a lot of um, exciting projects at hand. I'm hopefully going to do a bunch of shows in Montreal before I go back to Bangladesh. I, I hope to blow everyone's socks off.
0: Damir Khan there in that report from Naomi Shoe Elegant. Yeah. <laughs> Next, to Cairo, where the Al-Azhar University is the centre of power of Sunni Islam. There, a private board of elders is responsible for electing a new grand imam, the highest authority in the Sunni sect. A new film, Cairo Conspiracy, follows Adam, the son of a fisherman, who's offered a place to study at Al-Azhar. His dream soon turns into a nightmare, however, as he becomes a pawn in the conflict between Egypt's religious and political elites. The film is a thrilling exploration of power with some unforgettable performances at its heart. And I was delighted to catch up with the director, Tarek Saleh, to find out more about the conception of the film. Tarek, thank you so much for joining us on uh, Culture today. And congratulations on Cairo Conspiracy, we should say, as well. It's a fantastic, bold, tense film. And so I'm going to ask you the classic question to begin with, with that in mind, actually. What was, the, what was the kernel of the idea and the genesis of it? Because it feels very much like we're in the run-up to an Arab Spring-like situation, perhaps, and Tahrir Square specifically in Egypt.
3: It started with me rereading um, Umberto Eco's In the Name of the Rose, and... Um... The way i remembered that novel when i read it when i when i was a teenager the first time it was like a harry potter you know the, harry potter didn't exist at that time i saw it as sort of a this just this detective story uh, but when i reread it i realized that it was an investigation of the belief system put in the genre of a detective story which was so bold and i started to ask myself could i do this but from within Sunni Islam and the answer to that was absolutely not absolutely not that's not you know that's crossing not just one red line but you know that's not going to be accepted but if I would do it I would place it at Al-Azhar and then I started to play that game that artists do with themselves where all of a sudden, you're telling yourself a story. All of a sudden, you're writing it down. And here we are making an interview about the film. It seems to have
0: such a clear line through it. You you wrote and directed the film. It seems to have such a clear line through it from... Well, you can tell us. I mean, it seems from, from the first scene to the final scene, and there is a, there is a sort of denou- a denouement of sorts in the movie... But was that line as clear in the making of the film and in the the realising of your original script, Tarek?
3: You know, no, it wasn't. From the beginning, it was sort of struggling between two genres, the coming of age and the spy thriller. At one point, I had a, a very close friend of mine, a filmmaker, read the script, and he just told me, you know what this is about, Tarek? It's about authority. And it just hit me right in the heart because authority is something I'm struggling with. I've always struggled with. I have a real authority problem. And I even have problems with my own authority, to be honest. I mean, as a film director, it's one of the last sort of tyrannic, uh, where, where you're allowed to be a tyrant, where you have to be a tyrant, where you have to be a dictator. And I have a real problem with that. Every time I sit in the production bus after a day of work I just feel like I don't like who I am when I'm when I'm this powerful you know so once I knew it was about authority the line became very clear then I realized that this this is a story about authority and um and how power then...
0: sharing is so <laughs> is is seen to be very difficult in so many political and clerical situations I suppose how one that one person always has to be the king of the castle
3: oh yeah I mean in Egypt has of course had that history where you know you had Pharaoh who was God on earth Mm. and uh, at the same time he needed the priest to to tell the people that he was God on earth and when they were in conflict you know someone would end up with a knife in his back And that happened more than once in history, in Egyptian history. So that has carried through. And uh, today you have a ruler who wants to be, uh, you know, uh, El-Sisi who rules Egypt right now. He wants to be a pharaoh. He wants, he doesn't want to be challenged by anyone. And then you have this, you know, religious institution that people listen to and that um, comes out with religious recommendations. And so C.C. wants to challenge that institution. And um, of course, as a dramatist, that, you know, <laughs> the Shakespeare in me is like, oh, yes, this yes. is good drama.
0: Yes, yes, please. Exactly. Yeah, one man's horrible lack of separation between church and state is another man's clover, I suppose, Derek, at least in filmmaking terms. Um, And tell us about that. I feel like... This is, in certain ways, a personal film, but it is, as much as it's part of your half-Egyptian or your, your, your father's Egyptian side, that Egyptian understanding of the situation in that country, but it's also, as I was kind of setting up, it is a kind of discussion on church and state and and the power of doctrine and the mis- and the willful misreading of doctrine in order for it to, to mean anything that you want in order for it to suit you. How much is that? Those Are those themes personal to you? Or are they personal simply to the Egyptian side of your upbringing and your understanding of the world?
3: No, I think they're very universal themes. And you could say here, there is a connection between Sweden and Egypt. And for that, matter Britain and Egypt where we have an institution say the crown you know and then you have the politics which wants to you know try to use the institution to justify its power and um, when they are in conflict it becomes interesting and uh, for example in Sweden I mean when the shit hits the fan you know it's not enough with the prime minister speaking we need the king to speak you know we need a king to come and talk to us because he represents what is not changing you know the institution and so i think that it's to simplify to say it's a between religion and, and state it is actually about institution and politics and politics of course changes every day like I always say, like, I'm not a political filmmaker. I mean, I'm forced to be political in the sense that I just don't censor myself. And then I become political in today's world. But, you know, I would never do a political film in the sense that I'm trying to promote a political view. Because I know that today's politics is tomorrow's joke, you know. And that's just nature of it. Like, you know, we know more tomorrow. You know,
0: yeah, we're, we're and we're taking these fine ideas for a for a walk for the purposes of our interview, Tarek. But your film pulls no punches. It shows the brutality of the state. It shows some of the kind of <laughs> the morality of of a certain strand of of cleric as well. How easy was Cairo Conspiracy to make as a film? Because this is the first thing I wondered about. 10 minutes into the film, is where did you shoot this? Because I'm sure Cairo didn't give you a shooting. (laughs) The Egyptians didn't give you a shooting visa for this.
3: Oh, yeah. When I saw the film, when it premiered in Cannes, that was sort of the trauma. Watching the film, I was like watching a diary of like, oh my God, it's like free falling, you know? It was very difficult to make. I mean, there were many aspects of it that was difficult. First of all, it was shot during COVID. And as you know, there's mass scenes. I mean, there is just thousands of people in the scenes, and that was a nightmare in itself. And then I was going to shoot it in Morocco, but Morocco closed down because of COVID. And then we realized that Istanbul was the best place to shoot it. And luckily for me, Erdogan and El Sisi were in a conflict at that time. They're now friends, you know, these guys, they, you know. They make up. Strong men sometimes
0: <laughs> swim together.
3: <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And so I was very lucky that they were in a conflict at the time. So I saw an opportunity, a window. So I jumped into it and I, I shot the film there. And uh, I shot it in the Suleimani Mosque, which is one of the architectural masterpieces in Sunni Islam. Built a few hundred years after Al-Azhar. But, um, you know, it's a beautiful, beautiful building. So I was very lucky to to have access to that. I mean, it's not easy to make films, but, you know, I always tell my wife that, you know, when she says, why don't you do something easier? I'm like, you're assuming I want it to be easy. I want it to be difficult. That's sort of what turns me on, you know, I... I, I want to make something that is impossible.
0: Well, this movie is, yes, it seems to do that. I was amazed. And and also with that location, that, that location that you, you shot it in in the end, is still, there still is a reverence that sort of ululates through that sort of architecture. I mean, that, that can't have even been easy. Um, crowd scenes or otherwise, to shoot something that cuts to the quick of some of the structures, if not the beliefs, the structures and the rigors and the doctrine of, of, of a certain religion must have been perhaps nerve-wracking or perhaps you just had your eyes on the creative prize, Tarek?
3: No, uh, one thing that people misunderstand about Islam is that it's a sensitive religion. And that's because, you know, first of all, there is it, the religion has been hijacked by a very small group of psychopaths that I... I just want to ignore because I or I mean, at best ignore, we should we should absolutely oppose them. But most Muslims have a pretty, you know, a sober way of looking at the clerics. If you ask most Muslims, they know that there are corrupt Imams and Imams that want power and that is, you know, has secret marriages and all that. That's not controversial to say in a way the script is not controversial from a religious point of view it's really controversial from a political point of view because Mm -hmm. i am pointing at something that leaders in the middle east do not want to acknowledge that there is a conflict between religion and state
0: beautiful Tarek saleh thank you so much for talking us through cairo conspiracy and congratulations on it. It's a wonderful, wonderful tense and important film, I think. Thank you very much. Thanks, Rob. Thanks to Tarek Saleh there and Cairo Conspiracy is out now. And finally, San Francisco's Tenderloin neighbourhood is the poster child for the city's ills. Lurid media coverage of homelessness, drug addiction, untreated mental illness and crime in the city by the bay inevitably run through the Tenderloin. There's no sugarcoating the rough conditions that can be found in those city blocks. But there's also more than meets the eye. For several years, a plucky group of artists have cast a very different light on the beleaguered district. Monocle Radio's Gregory Scruggs braved the infamous and perhaps unfairly maligned neighbourhood to meet with curators and performers at the Tenderloin Arts Festival, which runs through the end of April.
4: I'm Clark Soprenowitz. I'm the executive director of Immersive Arts Alliance. We actually planned, going back hmm, five months ago now, to project onto these towers uh, that are the back of the Beller Hotel, is also the north side of Bedeker Park at the heart of the Tenderloin. There are seven artists that have loaned us work that we are projecting under the side of this building. And we're also having performances going on, in some cases simultaneously, down here in this basketball court we're standing on. They are kind of continuing this legacy of experimental filmmaking, which is part of San Francisco's arts culture, going all the way back at least as far as the 60s, meaning you're seeing something animated and moving and colorful, but it's not necessarily a narrative with characters that are developing, Right.
5: from Immersive Arts Alliance. Let's give them a hand. Can we just talk about this setup? This is so cute. <laughs> and this is part of the Tenderloin Arts Festival, which will be running all month through April 29th. Give it up for Counterpulse and House Arts for putting the shindig on. Thank you very much. Oh, we're going to see so much this evening. We have projections. We have lovely live performances. We're gonna get it all. Think immersive, as I said. (laughs) So feel free, there's benches all the way around the perimeter, places for you to sit. You can come close. I invite you to move around, get different perspectives, come close, go far away, do all of the things, and please sit back or walk around and enjoy.
6: Before settling in under the chilly San Francisco night sky to watch mesmerizing experimental films projected with razor-sharp clarity as dancers moved elegantly across the basketball court, I made my way to a bright red theater at 80 Turk Street, an anchor of the Tenderloin's arts scene, to learn more about perceptions and misperceptions of the neighborhood.
2: My name is Julie Phelps. I'm the artistic and executive director of Counterpulse, Counterpulse is located in downtown San Francisco in the Tenderloin neighborhood. We've been here for about eight years. We're an interdisciplinary art space that hosts everything from gallery exhibitions to dance performances. The Tenderloin neighborhood is one of the most historic neighborhoods in San Francisco. The Tenderloin has many different stereotypes, some positive, some not so positive, that have sort of followed it through its very long and like winding history as a neighborhood. I think that currently the tenderloin is viewed as a neighborhood of like uncontrolled vice and crime it would be an overstatement to say that the things you hear in the headlines aren't true there is open-air drug dealing there is crime on the streets but it's not the most salient dimension of the neighborhood if you actually are a person who lives works or loves this neighborhood the really important parts of the tenderloin For those of us who actually spend time in the Tenderloin are the local nightlife, the grassroots culture, the high concentration of nonprofits, the long-standing residential population that's actually involved in community meetings and showing up to a board of supervisor meetings. Those are the real standout features of the neighborhood.
7: Hi, my name's Gray Tartaglione. I'm the communications director here at Counterpulse. The Tenderloin Arts Festival was sparked out of an idea by our friends at Safe House Arts, which is a neighboring arts organization just down the street. And the original idea was to activate all sorts of spaces throughout the Tenderloin, so really celebrating the variety of locations and matching those locations with artists. So last night I was at a drag show Um at, uh, on Charlie's Lounge, which happens here all the time, but um, celebrating those artists as part of this larger art festival, it really just gives them that stage to bring this sort of drag culture into like the larger art world. We have a weaving workshop happening this Friday. We have an Indian folk dance happening at The Asian Art Museum later this month. And tonight we're going to be at just local park of the Tenderloin, the Bodecker Park, where we'll have these large scale video art installations being projected onto the back of a motel um, and performers dancing in a basketball court. So it's really like taking these unique spaces that are already so beautifully kept um, by our neighbors here at the Tenderloin and filling them with art and filling them with vibrancy.
6: Can you tell me more about the history of drag and transgender culture in this neighborhood? I get the impression that's a significant thread in the cultural fabric of the Tenderloin, and I was wondering how that plays into your curatorial decisions about the festival.
7: Before there was the Stonewall riots, there was the Compton Cafeteria riots, which happened here in the Tenderloin. And the Tenderloin, since then and before then and forever, will be just a home for the transgender community. The transgender district, which was founded here just a few years ago, has really taken the initiative to put this neighborhood on the map for transgender communities, specifically. I started doing drag here at Counterpulse back in 2017, which is sort of how I found Counterpulse to begin with. And, you know, knowing that Counterpulse is is a space where drag is accepted not only as a nightlife performance, but also just for having those big ideas and, and dreaming the impossible dream that drag is sort of calls you to do. It's like Counterpulse is one of the few spaces in San Francisco that really allows for that sort of scale with drag performance um, and allows people to sort of think beyond nightlife performance and, and really validate those artists as drag performers. And so having those artists as part of the Tenderloin Arts Festival, even within those nightlife spaces, I think is really important.
5: I'm so excited to be here. I am your MC for the evening. My name is Major Hammy and I am a drag king, if you could not tell already. Really? And I'm super- Oh yeah, we can pump it up for the drag kings. I'm here for that. Thank you. Yeah.
2: Oftentimes the risk is equal to the reward, as it's been said, right? And the Tenderloin is a neighborhood that's not necessarily easy to digest as a visitor. There is a lot on the street that is challenging, but we've seen that neighborhoods that aren't necessarily easy to digest and have this kind of rich intersection of so many different facets of humanity are where things are going down that are worth worth participating in. And I think that the Tenderloin is... It would be, rem- it would, I would be remiss to say that it's, not, there's not a lot of sad things happening on the street, but visiting the Tenderloin is worth it.
6: Back at the festival, Clark Siprinowicz had no qualms about firing up his high-end light projection rig in the Tenderloin.
4: You may not know this, a lot of people don't, but there's a greater concentration of families in the Tenderloin than any neighborhood in the Bay Area, bar none. So if you walk around this neighborhood, you might think, oh, wow, there's a lot of homelessness and there must be some issues with uh, drug use and so on. That is very visible on the streets. This is considered a rough neighborhood. But if you're here in this very park in the afternoon, you see a lot of kids playing basketball, a lot of kids playing A lot of families here so I feel like you know what we're doing is bringing art to this neighborhood just like art should go to all the neighborhoods in America's cities even ones that feel you know a little sketchy I mean if anything they needed more
0: Many thanks to Gregory Scruggs for that report from San Francisco. And that is all for this week. My thanks also to Naomi Shoe-Elegant and Demir Khan and, of course, Tarek Saleh. Monocle on Culture is produced by Sophie Monaghan-Coombs and Steph Chungu. And Steph also edits the show. Special thanks to Emily Sands for her help editing this episode. We'll be back at the same time next week. But until then, from me, Robert Bounds, thanks for tuning in. <laughs>
6: Do <laughs> do